Johnny Cash once described country music as being made of emotions, of love, of breakup, of love and hate, and death and dying, mama, apple pie, and the whole thing. I'm Tennessean country music writer Cindy Watts. Welcome to Country Mile, the USA Today Network's new podcast series exploring the evolution of one of America's truest art forms through the stories of some of the genre's biggest names. You take your watch off and let me have it so we don't go over. So there's what? no clock in here. I want your watch. What? Take it. Oh, you need... I need to know what time it I is. I don't want to give you this watch, though. I'm going to give it back. Okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> the nicest thing you've ever done for me. Garth gave me that watch. I'm <laughs> like, keep it. <laughs> is it right? I hope. Twice a day. <laughs> At least. <laughs> Today, we have 21-time Grammy winner Vince Gill, known for hits including When I Call Your Name and Go Rest High on the Mountain, and Chris Young, an RCA recording artist who has 11 number one hits, including I'm Coming Over and Hanging On. His new single, Drowning, is out now. We're at Belmont's The Gig, which stands for Gallery of Iconic Guitars. There's walls lined with these priceless instruments, some of which come from Vince's private collection. Today, we're going to talk about firsts. I should have added in Chris's introduction, um, Chris Young capable of lifting Vince Gill off the stage <laughs> at the Grand Ole Opry. So don't mess with it. It's, it's, there's a photo proof of that. So. There is. There is. Next time, he's going to bench press. Vince. <laughs> Vince told me he remembers the first time he ever heard music, which I think is pretty amazing. I was just kidding. Um, you were just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has gone off the rails quickly. <laughs> no, I, I think as I think back, trying to remember, you know, and which is the first is is crazy because I don't remember if it was my dad playing or or my grandmother. But my the one I really kind of feel like is my first conscious memory was my grandmother playing the piano, playing "How Great Thou Art" on the piano. I just remember that song, and 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 it's like uh, it's part of my DNA and. It's emotional every time I hear that song. And I did a version of that 100 years later with Carrie Underwood. And they asked me to sing a verse. And I told them, said, no, I'm going to play the guitar. But the truth was, I knew I couldn't sing it because I knew how emotional it would be for me. So I chose to play it, but never really told anybody why I didn't want to sing. But uh, my, my grandmother was a very large woman. You know, she was bigger than me by a mile. And, but she played kind of a stride kind of piano playing, and she had a lot of stuff under her arms, you know, and I'd sit on the chair and just get whacked by her arms. <laughs> <laughs> what was? Yeah, exactly, yeah. But pretty sweet memory, you know. Yeah, I guess for, uh, for me, the biggest one is I always talk about my grandfather on my, my mom's side being a huge musical influence on me. He was. It's, uh, you know, when I got to be inducted as a member of the opera, he, he actually got to be there and um, cried. Like, I mean, that was just a thing. I would sit there and listen to him play guitar and play piano, and um, he was the reason that I know who Marty Robbins is, and, you know, it's just so many musical memories from him, but it was actually my grandmother on my dad's side. Um, my grandfather on that side had passed away before I was born, and... Um, when I was a kid, the first thing that I would ask her to do was uh, she had a little like 
record of uh, Atlanta Blue by the Stadler Brothers. For whatever reason, as a kid, I that was the one thing that I wanted to hear again. And I still think it's funny because that's kind of the hallmark of music is if you want to hear it again, then it's got to be good, especially if it's like the 80th time. It's like, I want to hear it one more time. I think she was tired of that record by the time that I got tired of it. But that that was kind of the, the first thing. And I've, I've still actually got that record when she she passed away. I've got that copy of that record. Didn't you say you were so little that you couldn't pronounce it? I could not say Atlanta very well. How did you say it? I don't remember, and I'm not going to attempt it. <laughs> Sing it for me. I, I, yeah, I've yeah. Never just, it. I've yeah. never heard it. <laughs> really? <laughs> <I'm> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but that that seriously was just one of one of the things that I remember as a first time hearing hearing music. I think maybe jumping off that, what's the first song you learned to play? Okay, so this is gonna sound really weird. Um, other than just like don't hanging, say one of mine. No, if if you ever have forever in mind, that was a. Uh, I uh, it was before my voice changed, so that would have been Could have made yeah, sense. Was, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I live I, in a nice house because I sing like a woman, buddy. <laughs> um, I, it's no surprise I'm a huge Vince Gill fan, so it's uh, I, I'm I will laud praise on him the whole time I'm sitting next to him because I'm just excited to be here and be a part of this. But uh, it, the first thing I learned to play on guitar, I I had kind of messed around with it on my own, and I'm sure I learned something before this, but I was like, well, I want to take guitar lessons. And for some unknown reason, the guy wanted me to learn like that three, four-finger right-hand roll and so he taught me Dust in the Wind. Perfect. Kansas. Yeah. That's a great song. That's way too many chords for the first song for you to learn. <laughs> like, he was just like, hey, we're going to throw you in the deep end and see how you go. And, uh, and I've never come back. I'm terrible. <laughs> but it, it's, uh, it, it was just really funny because that was once I learned that, I was like, is everything this hard? And then he started teaching me like stuff that had three chords in it and a regular strum pattern. I was like, oh. Oh, you should have done this first. And he goes, oh, of course I wouldn't do that. I was like, you start with the hard thing first, and then you see if you want to do it or not. I was like, it's an interesting teaching method, but I'm still playing guitar and still writing songs, so I guess it worked. What about you, Vince? What was the first thing you learned to play? Oh, gosh. You know, I'm 62. This is hard to remember. Um, you can just make something up. I'll make something up. Uh, probably while Say it was one of mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I remember, I think, Wildwood Flower, and I think that's important. Um, because the real definitive version of that song was Mother Maybell Carter. And a lot of people don't uh, give the credit due to her for being the very first lead guitar player in the history of country music, which is pretty powerful. And um, that I think that anybody that ever especially from my generation and older, that's, that's, a, that's a song that everybody learns to play first, I think, on the guitar. And um, give credit to where it's, where, where it's due, you know. Mother Maybell was, was the first. And there's a documentary coming out in just a few weeks. Ken Burns has done. And it, um, it tells our history so beautifully. I don't know if you've gotten to see it, but it's, um, I think, going to finally... Uh, create a respect for country music and the history of it that it's never ever had uh, in a way that that probably 
couldn't have been done unless an outsider did it and really understood it and and told our story with such grace and and uh, it's it's magnificent but it it should be well noted that that sweet woman taught us all how to play the guitar documentary i can't say enough about it obviously the way that he just expressed it was extremely eloquent but i've gotten to see like little bits and pieces as it was being done obviously working with the cma the way that i've done with the board and uh it's just such a such a cool thing and it he took so much time Mm -hmm. to do this i mean it, it is it is truly magnificent i don't know that it could have been done better I think more than eight years, right, is, mm-hmm. what, is what they ended up saying. Yeah, and 20 people twenty people that were interviewed when the documentary started until it was finished have passed. So there's 20 people in the documentary that have that have passed on since the beginning, and, and you watch it and you get a pretty tender heart for a lot of folks that were in it that, that aren't here anymore. You said that you thought that it was a perspective that was served by the fact that he was an outsider. And that's interesting. Like nobody said that before. I think when when someone's not jaded about an opinion of what it is that they love or like, they're not as apt to to put their stamp on it of what they like and what they, you know. And that's what's beautiful about it. It it comes at it obviously with you know anybody can tell the history of our music just by going well that record and then that record and then that record. But but all the details that are in between that are even fun for me to know. I know a lot about our history, but there's a bunch of things I never knew and it's fantastic to find out. You know, um, a lot of people don't probably rea- won't realize that Roger Miller is the one who, I think, found the crash site of Patsy Cline's plane crash. He found out it was missing at night, and they all went and started looking, and he's the one that came upon the crash site. Just little things like that. Um, what I'm most taken with in the documentary is I, I kind of know Ken's history of equality, of how he feels about all of those kinds of things. And the way he tells this story is the truth. But there's so many um, elements of our very first history that were, you know, we, we had a segregated world for so long, sadly, uh, one of our greatest mistakes in our, our history. But... Um, when you find out that the Carter family had a black gentleman that went with them to find songs, when you find that Jimmy Rogers was taught all these songs he learned by black field workers, when Hank Williams was taught to play the guitar by a black gentleman named T-Tot, you know, just how throughout the history of this music there was no race problems between the creative-minded people. You know, It was within the culture and the society that those problems existed. And the fact that he tells that story and proves that story is really powerful to me, you know, because it, it, it then affirms everything I've always believed, the way I've always felt. I never cared where anything come from, came from or who it was by, you know. I just loved music. And, you know, there was a, a woman named Lil Hardin that played on some of Jimmy Rogers' first records, black piano player that was married to Louis Armstrong and, and just all this thread, D. Ford Bailey at the Opry and the struggles they went through just traveling together and trying to find a place to eat where they 
let it, you know, wouldn't let him come in and all this kind of stuff that's, you know, really sad about our history, but told with such grace and dignity that it's, I think it's going to make a powerful impact in showing the world what we've kind of always felt that we, we didn't see, see all that stuff. Well, Vince, when did you first realize you wanted to be a player? You wanted to be an entertainer? Well, there are two very da- yes. very <laughs> different <laughs> words to me. Entertainer scares me to death. It creeps me out. Because I, um, I don't fancy myself an entertainer. I like to tell good stories and I can tell jokes and I'm, I'm funny sometimes. But um, I played the guitar because I could hide. And I was not the kid that had a hairbrush in the mirror thinking he was Elvis. I was the kid that had his head down. I was practicing. I was working. I go, how did Chet do that? How did this guy do that? And, and I, I was so immersed in wanting just to be a musician. And I still am at 62. Um, somebody, you know, it turned out somebody had to sing the songs, and I found out I could sing. It took me a long time to have the courage to sing. I think the first, uh, my first memory of playing in front of anybody was, I think, in second grade. Uh, they let me come over to the auditorium at school and play and sing for the all the kids at school. And I chose the House of the Rising Sun to, <laughs> <laughs> to be the song that I played. There is a house in New Orleans. And I'm sure all the all the teachers are rolling their eyes going, this kid has no idea what a cat house is, you know. But um, anyway, that was that was writing on the wall. I knew I was destined to be a hillbilly singer someday if the first song I ever sang in front of anybody was the House of the Rising Sun. And and with just a little bit of time, it it, it takes a lot of courage. You know, it takes a tremendous, an abnormal amount of courage to stand up in front of people and sing or stand up in front of people and play because it, it, it reeks of arrogance in a sense that, hey, watch this, watch what I can do. You know, it's abnormal. But there was just something about it that that I can't explain of, of how deep it went inside me, you know, of of the love that I had for it and the love that I I, I witnessed, you know. As, as the youngest kid in um, my family, I had to listen to everybody else's music, my mom and dad's music, my big brother's music, my big sister's music, before I could ever buy a record. And I don't know what your first record you ever bought was. Mine was a Beatle record when I finally took my 95 cents and went down to the music store and, and bought a 45. I bought a Beatle record. What was your first record you bought? Mine? Mm-hmm. I believe it was Alabama's Mountain Music on 8-track. Oh, cool. I had a record on 8-track. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the first record you paid money for, Chris? Uh, L.A. to Miami, Keith Willie. Um, and, uh, you know... It could have been anything because, like, my entrance to music, you're talking about listening to what everybody else listened to. Uh, You know, I listened to everything that my mom and dad listened to, which they ran a skating rink at one point. So all of that. (laughs) Plus, which it's Gap Band and everything that you can imagine. Um, And then we listened to Country in the Car all the time. And so... uh, I asked my mom one time, I was like, what's the first song that I learned all the words to? 
<laughs> she told me. I was like, okay. Because you're saying playing House of the Rising Sun. Evidently, the first thing that I wanted to learn all the words to and sing in the backseat of the car was Digging Up Bones by Randy Travis. Perfect. Which doesn't make any sense. Um, and I, I'm sure I had absolutely zero idea what the words to that song meant. Why doesn't it make any sense? I, why would that be the first one that I was as a kid that I'm like, yes, digging up bones? Because it's fun. <laughs> I'm digging up bones. I'm digging up bones. Exhuming, that's a big yeah, word. Yeah, exhuming a is a large It's like, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Um, My six year old son loves that song. Well, there you go. So maybe it's, maybe it's a thing. Thanks, little boy thing. So when you won your truck on Nashville Star, when you Ooh, went National here we Star? Go. No, because this ties in. Because do you remember <laughs> the the first thing you did? I was randomly there that day for when I worked for the Daily News Journal. Was take the Keith Whitley album out of the old truck, truck and put it in the new one, and put it in the new truck. That was the first. Thing I you did. had forgotten that I did that, and uh, that was really exciting because, as much as we're talking about forty fives and eight tracks, uh, I got to have the first new truck that I'd ever had in my life. So I got to take the CD out of the no-skip disc changer that sat in the center of my old F-150 that had, like, the thing that ran to the tape deck because I couldn't afford to get the CD player. So you would convert it. It was just like, I don't even know if everybody remembers what I'm talking about. But I, I got to take that apart, and I just had a normal CD player. And now there are no more CD players. <laughs> and it was just, like, such a cool thing for me. I was like, oh, my God, I can just put it in and push play. This is great. Did you have to pay taxes on that truck you won? I'm sure I did. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My mom's an accountant, so we should ask her. <laughs> <laughs> I think they paid it for you. No, no, I'm sure they didn't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so when was the first time you heard yourself on the radio? Go ahead, Chris. Hadn't been that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> um, <laughs> the the first time I was gonna say the first time I remember um, after I got a deal, but actually the first time I heard myself on the radio, I had a buddy, and when I was in graduating high school, I made my first record, and it was terrible, but I made it, and I paid for it, and I worked construction with my dad in the summer so I could afford like the session to go in and record with the guys in Nashville. I was going to record a real grown-up record at a real studio. And uh, I had a, a buddy who let me go to his house in Franklin, and he had a little recording studio. And I went there awesome. while I was doing finals at, at my senior year in high school and sang the vocals, and he helped me edit them. And so we put everything together, and I get it out. And uh, there was a guy, Dennis, who was on one of the local stations like 30 minutes outside of Murfreesboro. And... I told him, I was like, well, I got a record. I sent it to him. He goes, well, come over here, and uh, we'll put you on the station. Hell, yeah. That's, I'm absolutely doing that. So I drove out there, and I was like, hey, man, just so you know, the minute you play this, I'm going outside, and I'm going to sit in the truck so I can listen to my song play because I've never heard my song on a radio station. And he was like, okay. I was like, so just prop the door open because I'll run back in when I hit the bridge. I know how long the song is, but I, I want to hear it. And I did. That was, a, that was a really cool thing. What was it called, the song? She, Atlanta Blue? She's, no, it wasn't Atlanta Blue. 
Uh, that might have been She's the One. I don't, I don't, there was, there was a bunch of songs on that record. I'm not sure which one he played. That's great. What about you, Vince? Uh, I can drive you to the spot. I, I, I'll never forget. I was in high school too, as a junior in high school and was in a couple of bands. And this one band wanted to pool our money together and make a record. And we did. And I'm driving on I-40 one day in my pickup and lo and behold, some knucklehead played it, you know, on the, on the station. And I got so excited and I get on the CB radio and I start yelling, Hey, they're playing our song on the radio. And truckers were coming back. Sound pretty good, kid. That, uh, and but what I, it's taken a million years to figure it out. You know, it was the best feeling in the world. And it still feels great. Even to this day, when somebody plays one of your records on the, on the radio, you st- I stay in the car till it's over. I don't know about you. You might get out, but I, 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 <laughs> no. I stay. Okay, so the like the weirdest thing that's happened to me recently is like I've got a lot of friends in Nashville, and so they know if I'm home, they're like, I had to tell one of them because every time I was where they work, if it came on, they would skip it because they were like, we don't, you probably don't want to hear your own song. I had to walk over to them. I was like, hey, you don't have to skip my song when it plays. I'm excited somebody <laughs> wanted to play it or put it on a playlist or anything else. I Trust me, every single time, I am not mad if it's one of my songs playing. So uh, that was it was kind of a weird thing, but it never it never gets old. Yeah, you know, it so. feels great. And, and uh, what I realized many 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 years later is uh, what that what that guy did for me by playing that record. It was an old John Stewart song called "July, You're a Woman." And it's uh, we were a bluegrass band and had playing banjo, and I was singing, and and it gave me hope. You know, it gave a seventeen year old kid hope, and. I've been riding that hope for 45 years, you know, and every time I make a record, I don't expect anybody to play it, but I hope they do. And there's a huge difference And uh, they can, you know, they can take away your expectations pretty easily, but they sure can't touch that hope. And so I, I still operate just kind of from a real hopeful spirit that somebody will respond. It just makes me mad that he can say things that I'm just like, well, next time somebody asks a question and I overhear him, I'm just going to be like, let me play this thing that Vince Gill said. (laughs) Your first paid gig. Does it have to be cash or just like first gig you were compensated for? Oh, they can pay you with potato chips. I don't don't care. Okay. Well, because that's kind of how I got paid. So uh, I was in a restaurant. I'm saying restaurant because it was a bar. Um, watching some friends of my family play um, when I was like 13, 14. And uh, the band looked at me and said, do you want to get up? And I was like, yeah. And I think, like, you know, my parents had kind of been like, get him up. But they they did. And they're like, what do you want to play? I was like, I was like, thanks. So I was like, uh, the fireman, George Strait. I'll do the fireman. And so... Which is, if you know that song, it's kind of an odd choice. <laughs> but I did it, and uh, it was awesome. I was having fun. And um, ordered, like, a hamburger and, and a Coke. And we're sitting there, and we got ready to go. And uh, the waitress was just being really, really nice. And she looked over, and she was like, oh, no, no, he doesn't have to pay. He's with the band. <laughs> and I was like... This is awesome. You're like, I'm in. I'm in. Pizza and uh, beer, baby. Pizza yeah, and man. beer. Still works for me. Pay me in pizza. My first, I, I, my first paying gig, I was 15. Had a little band, and, and this woman uh, let us play in her 
Can I cuss? I better not. If it makes um, you happy. Probably won't we be. We have I a beep, probably. Okay, probably not a good idea. But it was a rat hole, uh, to say the least. <laughs> and uh, we played, and she said she'd pay us 100 bucks to play the night, you know. So we we finished, and, and um, we went to get paid, and she just looked at us. She goes, I'm not paying you. I said, man, we played from 9 till 2. You said you'd pay us $100. She's tough. And so my father being a lawyer, I thought the only thing to do would be to sue her. You know, I'm 15. This is a real smart move. And uh, so we file a little lawsuit, in, you know, small claims court or whatever, and she shows up with a lawyer, and me and my two bandmates showed up looking like a couple of idiots. And, and uh, the judge says, son, I see here you're uh, suing this lady for $100 for services rendered. What happened? I said, well, we played her club, and, and she said she'd pay us $100. We got done, and she wouldn't pay us. He said, son, are you aware that she's countersuing you for slander and libel and defamation of character and this whole laundry list of stuff? And I go, no, no, I wasn't aware of that. He goes, you want some advice, kid? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, chalk this one up to experience and get out of my court. <laughs> so my first gig, I got stiffed. You, know, you got, you got, you got a hamburger. You got a hamburger and a Coke. I got stiffed. I think you won anyway, though. <laughs> I mean, oh, we wound up burning her club down. But uh, perfect. <laughs> well, my first, my first standing gig that I actually got paid for that was like with regularity was the El Chico. Good tortillas. <laughs> the El Chico Mexican restaurant on Murfreesboro Road. I used to sit out there and play for four hours acoustic, uh, PA on a stick. I would drive. I had like a little bitty tiny car, and so I would like you know Tetris everything into it, and drive up, and I would play, and I would tear down, and drive back. But I was in college, and I went to Belmont, and I got free quesadillas. <laughs> so everyone in my dorm loved me. <laughs> so you know that's the beauty of of this. Just hearing these stories is it's apparent that we will we would we did and would have done anything to try to get a chance to do this and a lot of people won't a lot of people will cut and run uh real quick you know if it's not if it's not going great and it just gets a little bit rough but man you go down on broadway you see see a thousand kids down there willing to starve to to try to try to play and because they love it you know we all kind of sometimes lose sight of why we ever learned to do this in the first place. Business can get in the way and hit records and, and a career and all those kinds of things. But I know without a shred of doubt that even if I was still playing at El Chico's five nights a week or the Holiday Inn or a pizza joint or, or whatever it was, I'd still play. I don't. I never cared about... My mom said it best. My mom was interviewed one time after I'd done fairly well and... And said, so did it bother you that your that your son didn't pursue an education and get a real job and da 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 da? She goes, no, it didn't bother me at all. She said, I didn't give a rip about having a rich kid, but I sure wanted to have a happy kid. And that's pretty pretty good place to 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 leap from if your folks were were going to do that for you, you know, and and not berate you the whole time you were trying to to live a dream. My mom was real upset that I didn't finish college. I, I was like, I, I don't know if that hey, makes First time you dropped out of college. Me, me look bad. I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, no. Uh, 
my, my mom always really, uh, I mean, I remember when she was a single parent before my stepdad came into the picture, uh, finding a way to pay for me to take voice lessons um, just because she knew I wanted to do it. And, uh, no, she put up with hours and hours and hours and hours of me just singing at the top of my lungs in my room, and we did not live in a very large house. So I know that had to be annoying. It's annoying now. And I'd, sometimes I'll just catch myself singing for no reason and be like, I'll look at like somebody on the bus and I'm like, I'm sorry. Like for no reason, just something completely random off the top of my head. And I don't know if that's a combination of me being ADD or just liking to sing all the time. But she sacrificed a whole lot um, for, for me and my sister. And uh, the fact that she was always cool with me wanting to do music and, and supporting me and really being able to uh, let me do what I wanted. It's amazing because, like you said, that's not every parent. So. No, it's not, and it's not every experience. That, you know, I got I got berated at high school all the time for being a rocker, you know, and then a bluegrasser. Really scary to be a bluegrasser in the 70s in high school. But, uh, you know, just saying the meanest, rudest things, you know. Like, you know, I had one guy that told this girl that sang with us some in the band, Said you shouldn't be hanging out with him. He's never going to amount to anything with that silly stuff they play and sing. And da 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 da. And vice principal that wanted to bust me out of school because he says, "I know you're blowing dope up here in my school. I've never smoked pot in my life." And just you know, people have no idea how harmful their words are, you know, to a kid especially. And um, I just think that uh, we we do a a great disservice sometimes to kids by by shoving them down rather than lifting them up. I uh, I missed a lot of days in high school when I was doing a bunch of stuff for music. Um, <laughs> well, it was it was really weird because I would get like um, Neris does the the Grammy Jazz Choir, so I started studying jazz as part of you know what I was doing to learn vocal ability and and I studied classical music and I did singing all these languages that I can't speak in, but I can sing in them. Uh, and uh, I got to be in the Grammy Jazz Choir, and I had a teacher that wanted to fail me, and I was acing her class and had to, like, call the principal in and call my call my mom in and everybody sit down when I was in high school because I had missed too many days of her class, even though it was excused because I was doing something for music. And she was like, this is ridiculous. He's never going to make money doing this. Yeah, I quit playing the violin in sixth grade because I got a mean teacher. She was just mean and said, I'm not going to put up with this, you know, and it, it happens all the time, but, you know, ain't no big deal. I remember I had a, um, talking about high school, I had algebra for the first time. You can hold two guns to my head and I'm not going to get algebra. And so here's my algebra year in a nutshell. I, every daily paper big fail, like getting, not, not getting 48s and 49s, but 12s, and 16s, and 21s, and the tests were even worse, and whatever. So I was not anywhere near a passing grade in algebra. And I get done with the report card, and I get my report card, and I see D minus on algebra. I went to the teacher, and I go, what's up with this? I didn't even come close. He goes, yeah, no kidding. He said, I don't I don't want you to ever have to see algebra again in your life. 
<laughs> he said, you could, you'll never get there. He said, you tried. I said, it just doesn't make sense to you. So I, I passed you. I said, he just said, keep playing your guitar. Don't worry about algebra. That's cool. And those are the kinds of things that, that you remember too. You know, the ones that, like I said, there's, there's ones that are going to shove you down and those, those that are going to lift you up. And I always wanted to be one of those. A friend of mine's a preacher. He said, two kinds of people in life. He said, there's drainers and refillers. Which one do you want to be? Coming up after a short break, Vince and Chris will talk about their first gigs in Nashville, the long history of botched Opry introductions, and new music, which is very personal to each of them. This podcast is brought to you by The Tennessean, part of the USA Today Network in partnership with Belmont University, where students can study music and music business in the heart of Music City, or they can choose from more than 95 other fields of study. To learn more, visit belmont.edu. Tell me about your first Nashville gig. Do you remember? My first Nashville gig. So the the thing with the band was always in Murfreesboro. I would play wherever they let me play in Murfreesboro. My first Nashville gig. Because he's from Murfreesboro. We should yeah, say that. Yeah, I'm from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So I think my first Nashville gig was probably... It, it, does a writer's round count? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Um, I, I used to play writer's rounds at the French Quarter, which doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. Has it gone? It's been gone for a long time. Um, it, it was just this little, did you say rat hole earlier? Is that how you got around well, not using the so, word? I was going to say something yeah, else. Yeah, I'm not going to use the word you weren't going to use either. So uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't very nice. Um, it but was they, rustic. They, rustic. It was a knife and gun uh, club. Yeah, they, they checked you at the door for a knife and gun. If you didn't have one, they'd give you one. Sure. Um, <laughs> fair fight. Fair, yeah. Yeah, just to make things fair. Uh I, I played there a, a lot um, because they would let me get up and play my original stuff, which at the time wasn't very good, and they would let me do it. And so I was like, cool, uh, as long as you guys let me come in here, I'm going to keep showing up. And um, it was it was either that or the other place that I played was Borders Bookstore. I did a, board, a Borders Bookstore tour, no joke, uh, down through Florida, and... Uh, I, I played at all of them, I think, from here to, <laughs> to wherever we went, and then all the way back, every single one I could find, because they would sell my independent CD That's cool. and, uh, and stock it in the stores if I, if I stopped in and played. And um, I, I know this was the question of what was your first gig, and I'm rambling, but my favorite memory talking about like getting through a gig where you're just like, you know they hate you. <laughs> like, you can tell. Um, there's, everybody's had at least one of those. And I, it was like the third stop on this tour. And my sister and my cousin had rode with me and they're like, Hey, we're going to go to the beach today while you play. Is that cool? I'm like, sure. I don't really know where we're at. This is kind of one of those where I don't have anybody that I know is going to show up. And I I set up to play and they had totally, you could tell immediately the manager did not know that I was going to be doing this. Uh, so they're like, I think we got a key to the closet back here with the PA. And so they went back and found it and set the PA up. And it's in the, the coffee shop of this bookstore was where we played every single one of these gigs. And they're all set up different, but it's tables and chairs. And, you know, you've got a little stage in the corner. There were three people in there. One of them was reading a book. Weird. Bookstore. bookstore yeah. Uh, <laughs> two of them were playing chess. And I was supposed to play for 45 minutes. I started, and the only way that I knew that they knew I had started, the two people playing chess never looked up. 
the woman reading the book stared through my soul when I started playing. And I was like, oh, well, it's going to be one of those. And I was like, in my head, I'll win them over. I can figure this out. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to play a, play a slow song to start off. They didn't like that. Um, nobody ever made any noise while I was doing this, by the way. Not, not any of them. Um, so I, I played about 24 minutes of music. I was supposed to play 45 and uh, wasn't getting them. So I, I went, this is going to be my last song, and I swear to God, all three of them clapped. <laughs> you won. You won them over. You and quit early. <laughs> if you'd have played and 45 I minutes, I don't think you'd have gotten that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first gig? My first gig in, in Nashville? Nashville? Oh, probably 1975. I was in a bluegrass band called the Bluegrass Alliance. And Bill Monroe used to do um, a bluegrass show at the Opry House. Opry House would have been brand new. It opened in 74. And he invited all the bluegrass bands to come and be able to play at his, you know, one-day bluegrass extravaganza. So it would have been the Opry House in 1975. And then uh, came here again maybe in 76, played, uh, I was in a band with Ricky Skaggs. We played the Exit Inn. Um, And I was, I played the Bluebird the first year it was open, 82. But I played here a bunch in the 70s. Played here with Pure Prairie League for for several shows down at the, downtown somewhere. Uh, I don't remember where, the the new, uh, uh, I don't even know what it's called anymore. But, so I'd been been coming here a lot er, er, early on. What about the first time you mentioned the Opry House? What about the first time you played the Opry? First time I played the Opry would have been maybe 88 or 9. How'd that feel? Uh, it was special. You know, the, the, I'd always tell the story, and it's humorous, but um, I had always dreamed to playing there and had actually been invited by a few other artists to come and maybe play guitar, sing harmony. And I said, well, with all due respect, the first time I play that stage, I'd like it to be on my own. You know, and everybody understood that, and so the way my career went, it struggled for many, many years, and um, so my daughter Jenny, she's now thirty-seven with two kids. She was in first grade, and uh, she said, "Dad, can can you teach me a song so I can sing in the talent show at school?" I thought about House of the Rising Sun, but I thought better. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so we learned, "You are my sunshine." You know, and um, so with a school function, you have to make every rehearsal, and there's a million of them. And so we were all set to to play "You Are My Sunshine" at the at the school talent show in Grassland. And uh, so in the middle of that week, I got a call from Hal Durham, who was the manager of the Opry back then, and he said, "We've been watching your career. We like what you do. We'd we'd like to invite you to come and and be a guest on the Opry." And I went, "Yes, finally!" You know. I said, when? And they said, well, Saturday night. And I said, this Saturday night? And they said, yeah. And I said, man, can't make it. I'm booked at the Grassland Elementary School. <laughs> 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 and so I, I turned it down, you know, and, and said, I'm sorry. I promised my kid I would, I would play for her at this talent show. And so I did, and they invited me back sometime later and got to play there. And the first song I played was When I Call Your Name.
you know, it hadn't come out. It wasn't a hit, and I had no reason to think it would be. Nobody in their right mind was going to play a four-minute and 50-second waltz on country radio in 1989 or 90. But lo and behold, they did and changed my life. And here's the beautiful part of the story. I've been a member there for almost 30 years, but uh, when my daughter got married, we were trying to figure out a good song for the first father-daughter dance. And we struggled. How about this? I don't like this. How about this one? We both called each other one day, and she said, I've got the perfect song. I said, I do too. And it was You Are My Sunshine. Oh. You know, my my first time playing the Opry was actually right after I got my record deal, which is uh, almost 14 years ago. And um, I'll tell you one of the, the coolest things about getting asked to be a member and everybody has reasons why they say and I don't think I've ever actually said this reason but the first three and a half to four years of my record deal I would go home to Murfreesboro after being you know in every Buick Regal rental car and center southwest seat that you could possibly imagine flying all over the country I've been to every radio station at least three times physically um and there's what 172 stations on the panel now, so just think about that for actual number of days. Say what the panel uh, is, because uh, yeah, know. the panel is just a, the number of radio stations that make up basically what goes number one or not. That they weight each one depending on how many people listen to them and where they are, and that basically how many times they play it determines if you get a number one or a top ten or anything. So, uh, my first three singles went to 37. 52 and 37. Ding, ding, ding. So did mine. (laughs) (laughs) And I would come home and people would be like, so what are you doing these days? I was like, still got a record deal. Swear. I promise. Um, But the one place that let me keep coming back and playing was the opera. Yep. They, I played there probably a hundred times within the first four years because they would let me come back because I'd played there once. And um, it was a really hopeful thing. You talk about having hope, like mm-hmm. the fact that they kept letting me come back. I was like, I'll play anytime. And they were like, sure. And then I did. Um, but they kept letting me do it. And uh, it, it meant the world to me um, at that point because I really didn't have a whole lot going on. It was uh, it was really really cool and that's why it was such a big deal for me to get to be a member and keep going back and playing and as serious and heartfelt as that is let me tell you the weirdest thing did you have anybody with you the first time you played no, or did sir. you just go back I played by myself okay did I they actually share give that you with anybody did they give you any sort of warning warning like when you were going on or how to get to the stage or what you're supposed to do because they didn't tell me anything uh, i just knew and 8.15 rolled around to show up when they introduced me. <laughs> I was like they standing up backstage. The oh, did they really? <laughs> yeah. What did they? What was your uh, introduction? Bill, Vince, Bill Hall, something like that. It was <clears throat> a stuttering. In, in, there's some great ones. You know about the oh, yeah. history you, of them? Uh, so my, my favorite was probably Phil Vassar. Have you heard oh, the Phil yeah. Vassar one? Sure. So it, there's a long history of people being misintroduced at the Opry. And I won't say who mispronounced his name but they were looking off and they, they were trying to figure mind. out who uh who was coming on next and somebody was trying to yell at him it's phil vassar and they were just trying to read their lips 
And they went, ladies and gentlemen, Sylvester. Yeah. <laughs> it was Grandpa Jones, wasn't it? Was, I think, I it, think was. it was. Yeah. There's a great history. There is a beautiful history of everybody getting their name screwed up at the opera. I screwed up. I'm going to screw up her name trying to even say it now. But I, I mispronounced her name, and, and she said, well, thank you, Vince Neal, who's a heavy metal guy from another band. But I sent her flowers, apologized. But there's a couple of great ones. Uh, Grandpa Jones was uh, introducing Martina McBride, and he said, right here's a little lady coming out to sing for you. Make her welcome Matilda McBride. <laughs> The best was Grandpa always was the one that had a had a pretty good history of messing them up. But Singletary was fun. He did um, Bashful Brother Oswald and Charlie Collins, who'd been out there since the Opry started. You know, both of them for a hundred years. And and he looked over and he's getting ready to introduce them. And he, here comes a couple old boys that have been out here a good long time. And he said, "Let's make them welcome." And he goes, "Him and him." <laughs> Who did, who did Singletary? Because they I don't know. There's I, a million of them. Everybody he, gets he, butchered. One of the last records he put out before, uh, yeah, he he actually had the mailbox that had it spelled wrong because they <laughs> called him Daryl Singing Taylor before he walked on, and so he put that on his mailbox. And I just thought that was hilarious. But there's there's a bunch of them. But it's a it's a rite of passage. Yeah. Much earlier, I wanted to ask about your first gigs because this is the fun, or not your first gigs, they're first shows that you saw because this is the fun connection yeah. between Chris and Vince. It was him. Um, <sighs> Great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I get my walker. Somebody get yeah, my walker. I'm out of here. I say that, I, dude. I say this in my show every night um, before I before I play sober Saturday night, and it's like I haven't had a chance. I don't think to say it in front of you. Because if you were going to be there, you would hopefully be doing the song with me. Um, Depends on how I, much I'd have I, to Well, I was going to say, except the night that <laughs> you asked me to be a member of the Opry, which I thought you were mad at me because you wouldn't play this. You're like, I'm just not feeling well. I'm going to let you go on after me if you'll do that. I didn't realize you were setting me up. I thought you were like, I thought I pissed him off somehow. Uh, to be <laughs> honest, I was like, sorry. It's okay. My bad. You don't want to play on the song? All right. Um, but every night when I'm lucky enough now to be playing amphitheaters and uh, never thought I would get to that point in my career. Like, that's just a, a really, really cool thing for me. And uh, the first show I went to, my mom won tickets on the radio because she was, at that point, again, still a single parent. She didn't have a, have a whole bunch of opportunities to take me and my sister Dot to go do stuff. And so uh, she won tickets lawn seats at Starwood Amphitheater, which does not exist anymore. You were playing, and you kicked the, like, I, I, for that one song, you just kind of let it, whoever was behind you just kind of step back, and you played by yourself and sang. And um, I was just, like, blown away. I was just, I want to do that. That's awesome. Um, and I still can't play guitar. But it's, it, it was uh, such a cool moment for me, and... Um, when I wrote Sober Saturday Night, uh, I just started working with Larry Fitzgerald, who's sitting back there in the corner. And um, I, I was like, do you think Vince would be on this song? He goes, I don't know. Would you, you can send it to him. And you're going to have to call him because he doesn't text. 
I was like, what? He goes, no, he won't, it, you need to call him. I was like, okay. So I called him and I was like, hey, will you be on this song with me? And he said, yeah. And he goes, do you want to just come over to the house and record this? And I was like, yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> what is the address? And um, went over and, and he was sitting there and he uh, he sang on the song and, and he was, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you want me to play or not. And um, he goes, I, I just don't know if it's going to match up with all the other guitar parts that you have on the record, if it's going to be what you want stylistically. And I turn around, and if you ever get a chance to go to Vince's studio, the back right wall is just all awards, and pla- like all of them. I think he has all of the awards at his house. That's, I think they actually, if they want to give any more out, they have to go to Vince's house and get one <laughs> so that they can give it to somebody else. And I, I just kind of like leaned back and took a look. I was like, yeah, man, I'd really like you to play on this if you want to. <laughs> and, um, and it was amazing. And uh, I, I got a chance to have a number one with someone that I look up to as, as a, not only as a musician, but as a person. And um, still very, very grateful for that. And uh, it just meant the world to me. Right back at you. Trust me, at my age, it was fun to be on the radio again. <laughs> 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 no, my first... Uh, my first show I ever went to see was Chet, I think, with my dad. And uh, first, I mean, sometimes it's different if you go with your parents, but the first one I went to um, by myself was fifth or sixth grade was Paul Revere and the Raiders. And uh, I just lo- I love hearing music no matter where it comes from. But the Chet was, you know, it was pretty a- a- amazing because in my wildest dreams did I ever think we would become friends and get to play some music together occasionally. He came to Amy and uh, my wedding, and his wife had a huge crush on me for some some reason, and we were great friends. You know, I popped out of her birthday cake when she turned 70 or 80, <laughs> something like that. And I almost, it almost killed her. Like for real? Yeah, yeah. It, was a fa- <laughs> it wasn't a real cake. I wasn't inside of a cake, but a, a fake cake, and I popped out of it, and she she fell. She she. Dropped to the floor, and we thought we'd killed her. <laughs> but uh, no, that was that was powerful. Getting to see, getting to see firsthand what it was that you 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 have in your mind. You you picture how that guy could do that in your mind. And there wasn't videos. There wasn't YouTube. You know, the kids today they've got a the whole world's right there. You know, at the touch of a button with their phone. But we had to we had to figure it out out of the air. You know, it's much different, but Chet was my, my very first concert I ever got to go see. I think the only natural follow-up is, is that the first time you ever jumped out of a birthday cake? <laughs> well, sober, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, I think it might have been, but um, it was, you know, I adored those people. They were so sweet. And, and after Chet passed, she gave me, uh, we're in a room full of of. Great, great, great old old instruments. I I didn't make this happen, but I put the people together to have this be a possibility. The man that had this collection passed away, and the executor of the estate is a dear friend of mine. I said, you need to get in touch with Belmont. I bet you guys could do something, because he had dreamed of his instrument collection being in a museum. And what's beautiful about it being here is these kids that go to school here can find out what what great old instruments actually sound like you know they're they're amazing and 
um, all that to say was Leona knew how much I loved Chet, and I went to visit her not too long after he passed, and and uh, she took me downstairs, and there's this door, and it was locked. She unlocked the door, and inside this room was all of Chet's guitars. I just was like wide-eyed. I was like in the second grade again, you know, like when I first saw him. And she says, I think I'm just going to leave you down here for a while. I said, okay. <laughs> so I'd pick a case out, and I'd open it up, and i go, oh, man, there's the guitar from the cover where Chet picked on the Beatles, played all the Beatles songs, and this this guitar. And I just would tune them up a little bit, dust them off, and put them back in their case. And there was this one really sweet old Martin from the late 20s that I was really drawn to, and I just kept playing it and playing it. And she goes, you like that one, don't you? And I said, yeah. Not too long later, it wound up as a gift from her. So we're almost at, well, technically we're out of time, but both of you all have new music right now, I think, that's probably pretty personal to both of you. Um, Vince, do you want to tell us about Oki? Yeah, I asked somebody the other day, I said, have you heard my last record? And they said, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> that's a little Jimmy Dickens joke right there. But, um, <laughs> you know, I never, I never feel anything but lifted. Is all a good word when I'm doing something new, when I when I'm still trying to be creative and write songs that matter and mean something. And so I've made a record that um, is by far, from top to bottom, easily the most personal record I've ever made, most emotional record I've ever made. Not not everything's you know verbatim, I guess, of my life or anything. I don't think that'd be very interesting. I think music has to have some universal quality to it for for you to hear it and put yourself in maybe in the pictures of some of these songs and say, I can relate to that. I can see myself in this story. Um, but there's, you know, it's just a, uh, a bunch of songs that um, I felt I wanted to put out. And I, I, it's a different record for me in that there's not, I didn't play any electric guitar on the whole record. I just, I never wanted anything to distract from the songs. There's not big choruses and big hookies you know, harmony choruses and stuff like that. It's just simply played and by a handful of guys, and it's it's really wonderful how people are responding to it. There's two tributes uh, on the well. There's a bunch of tributes in a sense, but one uh, for Guy Clark, one of my great mentors as a songwriter and friend, and and Merle Haggard, who's my favorite artist of all time, and a song for my mom that's been sitting around for 18, 20 years that I finally got around to recording before it was too late. She heard it at 93 and meant the world to me that she got to hear. It's a song called A Letter to My Mama. It's basically a, a letter of apology after for all the things that you kind of regret doing, you know. And two songs for Amy um, that are, you know, trying to show how much I'm crazy about her, you know. And But they're, they're kind of steeped in a real kind of honest place. They're really truthful, and and they're vulnerable, I think that's what I, I like most about this record is it, it, it was pretty vulnerable to put myself out there and say some of the things that I said on this record. Can I tell us about Drowning? Yeah. Um, wrote a song about a buddy of mine that's been passed away for many years. And uh, when I first started telling people that I wrote the song like, well how many years ago is it well that's really not what's important I was like this is the first time that I wrote one that I felt encompassed how I actually felt 
and I felt it was right. And it was completely random. Um, sat down with a couple of my friends that we have written a bunch of songs that are nothing like this together. And uh, me and Corey Crowder and Josh Hogue. And um, I didn't even expect this to be up to be a single. Because, you know, how that works anymore is just kind of... Everybody's like, do you like put your foot down and go, this is going to be the next song? I was like, very rarely. Um, normally, I, I kind of want everybody to be on board with it because at the end of the day, there's a bunch of people at the label that are having to work that song just as much as I am. So if they hate it and I'm forcing them to work a song that they hate, it's probably not going to be in my best interest. And uh, not that I thought anybody would hate this one. It's just such a, it's an emotional song. And um, the the hook of the song is Missing You Comes in Waves and Tonight I'm Drowning. And uh, it, we wrote it very open-ended because all of us were thinking about different people um, when we wrote the song. And I wanted it to be able to be personal to everybody that hears it. I want them to be able to put whoever they've lost that was important to them into the song and hear that about them. And um, we just shot a really, really emotional video for it that is really special. Uh, and I don't know if what this song will end up doing, but the fact that they wanted to put it out and the fact that people that have already heard it have come up and told me before it's on the radio, hey, this song meant a lot to me and here's why. And they've told me stories about people that they've lost that were special to them. Uh, it's really the first time I've had a song like this and the first time that I've seen that kind of response from people. So it's uh, it's different, but it's something that was really special to me and I knew it was going to go on the record no matter what. And um, it's kind of just taken on its own life once people have heard it. So it's pretty cool. Well, that's a pretty serious note. To end our, uh, <laughs> end our okay, time. Okay, I'll fix everything. Thank All you, right. Vince. <laughs> I was driving on the way here. I was driving okay. down here on the way, and you know, a lot of a lot of people out there on bicycles and whatnot. And now downtown, you got these drunks on scooters, which don't let me get into that. But I'm driving along, and I've got my windows down. And I'm just cruising along, and this woman comes flying by me on her bicycle, and I just leaned over and I went, "Cow!" She gave me the finger, and then she hit the cow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to lighten it up so we can go home. I take back everything that I said previously (laughs) about listening to what Vince knows. Well, guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Sure. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Country Mile. This podcast series is produced by the USA Today Network's Erica Whitney and John Garcia. And I'm your host, Cindy Watts. Theme music from KillerTracks.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to rate and leave a review as well. For more in-depth coverage of country music, visit Tennessean.com backslash Country Mile.